and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So we left off last time, um, history of archaeology. We had just talked about Franz Boas, who was uh, German-born, father of American archaeology, uh, championed the four-field approach, was really interested in culture history, and this became kind of the norm. Um, the cultural history approach, which has an emphasis on the sequence of the spatial distribution of past events. Uh, spatial distribution studies, so they look at where different uh, groups had lived. So, you know, like I said before, just kind of easing back into where we are. Uh, we talked about splitting up North America into eco-regions that also had people living in them who were well adapted to that area, um, looking at how long they've lived there, where they came from, more of a historical approach rather than seeing people as ahistorical. I should also mention the normative model of culture. This is going to sound pretty obvious to us nowadays, but um, the normative model of culture has the idea that there are norms of behavior in society. We all exist and um, either adhere to or uh, adhere in opposition to norms of behavior, you know, the normal accepted behaviors. Um, even if we are purposefully um, going against those norms, a person in that society knows them. Right? This is a pretty obvious idea to us today, but was kind of a new thing to be pushing or to using. It was a new tool being used in the early 1900s to understand cultures in the past. Um, this is kind of an idea of culture and uh, behavior that's passed down from generation to generation. So it kind of fits into that uh, culture history model, right? Why do people today in the Arctic do uh, hunt seals in this way? Well, if we look at the norms of the normative model of behavior, that's how they learn to do it from their parents who learn from their parents who learn from their parents. Although, if we were to go there today, things are changing very rapidly because of uh, the use of fossil fuels. For example, a uh, fun fact, uh, the uh, Walruses have become resurgent. There's a huge population boom in walruses lately because walruses used to be used for sled dog food. And since everyone, or many people now use uh, snow machines and snowmobiles uh, instead of dog teams, they've stopped hunting walrus and the walrus population has just exploded. Um, not to mention it's warmer and yada, yada, yada. But the, the, uh, Sometimes I see the walrus spike as a sign of global warming, which probably has something to do with it, but the, the main predatory action on walruses was humans, but is no longer the case. Just, you know, an example of a factoid, fact devoid of context. Um, doop, doop, doop. So one problem with this normative model of culture is that it doesn't ask why. It just describes. So, okay, we taking our example of an Arctic uh, group who hunts seals, we'll say, okay, this is how they hunt seals. You don't really ask, well, why do they hunt seals? 
Why do they do it that way? Why, why, why? They don't really ask that in the cultural historical approach or the normative model. Uh, in, the, in this period, they're not really asking why. That comes a little later. The direct historical um, approach links modern-day people with those that lived in the past. The direct historical approach links people today, modern people, with those who lived in the past and then correlates those life ways. So if we're looking at hunter-gatherers who are living in Africa or New Guinea today, people might correlate those back to people in the past who lived a similar way, and they might start asking similar questions, functional questions, usually not why questions yet. The problem with this is, at this time, pre-World War II, we still have pretty rampant colonialism, and so a lot of the arguments that say, well, look at this hunter-gatherer group. They want to see the movie... Uh, God Must Be Crazy. The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's from like, I don't know, the 70s. It's a very uh, uh, kind of complicated in, in analysis for, from an anthropological point of view. But it's basically a movie about uh, Kung Song uh, Bushmen. It's kind of the first uh, wide-scale exposure that a lot of Westerners had uh, to these people in the, in the recent past. Um, and uh, the whole... Thing focuses around the, these Kalahari Bushmen who find a, a Coke bottle that was dropped out of a plane and they're completely flabbergasted like oh what is this and they go into arguments about what it is and obviously Kalahari Bushmen aren't that completely isolated that they don't know what a Coke bottle is right um, but it's it's kind of a caricature but the argument is that colonialism has completely modified societies and I was gonna say in that movie we see like a idealized Kalahari Bushman um, group who may or may not, you know, have been affected by colonialism. Um, fun story, not really a fun story. So the Kalahari Bushmen are like these, this group that's like the go-to hunter-gatherer society. But in the 1800s, they were actually herders and they had these Sorry about that. <laughs> Usually I remember when I'm turning on my uh, recording to turn off my phone. So now you all get one freebie, okay, um, before I start teasing you about having your phone go off. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, so the Kalahari Bushmen were actually uh, herders of um, large uh, herds of cattle, and then there was a rinderpest epidemic, which rinderpest is like a cow plague, literally. And uh, it wiped out their herds, and then they went back to hunter-gathering. So every, all these anthropologists, when you ever read about the Kalahari, Kalahari Bushmen, they're like, oh, the quintessential hunter-gatherers. They've only been hunter-gatherers again for the last 100 years. Before that, they were more stationary or at least nomadic herders. And before that, they were hunter-gatherers. But it's, we need to look at it in the long stretch of things to get a better sense and understanding. I hope that's what's coming across. Like I said, I'm going to skip the AAA debate. Okay. Let's get on to A.V. Kidder and some of the uh, last time we talked about uh, Mortimer Wheeler, Pitt Rivers, and some others who were mm, revolutionizing, is maybe too strong a word, but uh, pioneering really systematic excavation processes. Um, in the 1920s and 40s, we had people like A.V. Kidder, who was an American archaeologist who worked in Mesoamerica and the Southwest. Um, has anyone been out to the Southwest to the Pueblos and things? Nobody? Nobody? Oh, I, 
haven't either. I feel kind of ashamed as an archaeologist because they're so iconic and well-preserved. And ah. Anywho, um, he worked in the Southwest, and he helped develop the, a classificatory scheme that became the model for what everyone else did. Um, he also, basically this was a pottery typology, and this was a big deal for archaeologists is, even today, is classifying things and putting artifacts in little categories so you can make nice tables with columns saying, I have this many of this type and this many of this type, and from that we can infer uh, more social information. But a lot of that cataloging was starting a little before this, but really started ramping up in the early 1900s. He also used... Um, Pretty intense stratigraphy. Uh, Eric, you're in soil. Wait, who's in soil science or geology? Eric, Eric, right? No, right. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So stratigraphy is probably nothing new to you, but uh, we'll be talking a lot about stratigraphy in the next week or two. Uh, basically, these different layers are chronological packets, and each one is likely representing a, a uh, not an event, but a, a time period. Um, and these, these layers may or may not represent the time layers that we as archaeologists recognize, but there's nevertheless a chronological unit. And the things in them that we're going to talk about today, artifacts and so, and so on, are connected chronologically. And that's important to help us put these things in order, to help us look at, remember, the change of cultures over time. Um, A.V. Kidder's uh, regional approach is still used today. So he looks not only at one site, which was really popular before this, really focusing really deeply on one site. He looks at the site in its context of its region. And we're going to talk about the difference between a site, area, and region later on today or tomorrow. Um, and he's really, it's really when survey, as opposed to just excavation, became one of the big tools that archaeologists use. And we'll talk about what survey is next week. Then we have V. Gordon Child, who is uh, one of my favorite archaeologists. Uh, Australian-born, uh, lived in Britain, educated in Britain, um, lived 1893 to 1957, so not too old. Uh, he actually committed suicide <coughs> jumping off a cliff. Some people suggest that he was killed. Ooh, it's, yeah, that doesn't really matter. Um, but uh, he wrote a number of kind of synthetic works. At this time, like I said, a lot of people were really focused on one site. And when you, when you work at one site, you have what some of us call uh, my site syndrome. And uh, archaeologists will sometimes just become obsessed with like why their site is the best site, like the earliest, the biggest, the whatever superlative you want to put in there. They'll talk about that at their site all the time. And it gets kind of almost to be a parody of itself. And there, there's one archaeologist who I will not name who has a slide in every presentation I've ever seen him give where it's like blank site, because I'm not going to say it, uh, blank sites first, biggest and best, or something like that. And then he has just like a list of 20 different things about like how his site is the biggest, best, earliest, that yada, yada, yada. V. Gordon Child took a more large-scale, broad view of things. He looked at all these different sites with all the archaeologists working at them, read very deeply on all of them, and kind of synthesized them into one large-scale narrative, which hadn't really been done at the time. And so he wrote books like uh, The Dawn of European Civilization, 
very uh, kind of old school, outdated type of title today. But he compared the prehistoric sequences in Europe, and not really focusing on one region. And he was really to look at how the occupation of, of Europe happened and how people grew into sedentary, uh, large-scale societies over time. It was a continental approach rather than than really just a site-specific one, which is kind of a big deal. Um, he was also the person who coined the term Neolithic revolutions. Neo means new. Lithic means stone. Neolithic revolution. Revolution meaning revolution. Um, so uh, Neolithic re revolution has to do with the beginning of agriculture. So if I say Neolithic Revolution, I'm talking about when people stopped being hunter-gatherers and started farming, which happened about 10,000 years ago in the Middle East first, but it also happened in a couple other places as well, and we'll talk about those later. Um, he also talked about the urban revolution when cities started, which was a little later, three to 4,000 years later. We started seeing cities pop up, and so we call it the urban revolution. He was a... Uh, he loved the term revolution, uh, not probably part of the reason was he was uh, a Marxist archaeology. And in archaeology, when we talk about Marxism, it's in a different vein than we talk about it in politics today. Um, and there's a whole field of Marxist archaeology. There's the Soviet archaeology, which is then something else completely different that uses Marxist archaeology. But not all Marxist archaeology is Soviet archaeology. We'll talk about the distinction probably near the end of the semester when we have more um, data at our fingertips to look at different ways that the same information is interpreted differently. Because a lot of what I'll be telling you about ancient Egypt or Rome, it's an interpretation. Like some things are facts. Like if I say the Nile is a thousand kilometers long, it's fact, right? <laughs> That's not open to interpretation. But uh, there are plenty of things um, like saying the nomarchs, which were the regional governors in Egypt, became more powerful and uh, jealous of their territory over time. That's my interpretation. And it's not based on nothing, but there's interpretation there. Um, so when he was writing like Neolithic Revolution and Urban Revolution, that was right after the Russian Revolution before uh, really knowing what was going to go on there. All right, next. Who are you talking about people in social systems? Yeah. So, um, same thing. My ancient technology here has died. Right. Okay. Um, so, in the 1940s to 60s, we have the people in social systems period. And the big shift there is a lot of the what had become standard and accepted view of um, chronologies, right? So they've started to build these chronologies. But now we're starting to find more and more things. And this is true even through today. The previous uh, foundational ideas get overturned occasionally when we find new information. Like, um, I don't know if any of you has a, have a news alert for um, archaeology or anything, but I have a couple readers that have archaeology pop up. And uh, there was a recent find that pushes back the peopling of the new world like 5,000 years. I'm like, 
11 to 13,000 years ago to like 17,000 years ago, which looked pretty good. Um, so all the time, things get shaken up. This is no different. Um, in the 1940s, we had the Clovis, New Mexico uh, find of what are called Clovis points. These, they're basically spear points, um, pop up in context or in situ. Um, in situ is Latin, I-N-S-I-T-U. Um, in situ just means in its original location. In situ with an extinct bison. And this was a big deal because this was a big deal because uh, before then, people weren't really sure how long um, Native Americans had been in the New World. But when they found this Clovis point in the belly or in the ribs of an extinct mammoth, um, they knew, or excuse me, an extinct bison, they knew that, hey, people have been here a long time because this thing hasn't existed for thousands of years. This was a big change uh, for how people viewed the Native Americans. It was less time that they had been seen as being here, the less legitimacy they would be seen as having. And the, the longer time that they've been here um, in the Western view of time that's linear, they would seem to have more legitimacy. But at this point, it was pretty far gone. Hmm. Um, the Ford versus Spalding debate was a kind of a sea change. So remember how I talked about how archaeologists like to make categories, and they put everything in different categories, and they make really nice lists and tables and say, I have X number of this type of pottery and X or Y types of this type of pottery, and they make inferences from that. The Fort Spaulding debate kind of pulled that apart and said, well, we as archaeologists come up with those categories. So for example, a teacup, right? This is a teacup, but there's a wide variety of types of um, vessels that could be called a teacup, right? right? With a handle, taller, with a lid, right? These are all teacups in, in one classification, classification scheme. But if we wanted to classify them a different way, this is ceramic, and you might have a metal teacup, or you might have a plastic teacup, right? Uh, those would be different ways to classify things. You could classify them by country of origin. This is a Chinese one. Uh, well, frankly, a lot of the the ones that we get made today are also Chinese, technically speaking. Um, but uh, you could also get American-made ones or whatever. So there are many different ways to classify, classify things. So it's a little bit uh, unfair for archaeologists to say, like, oh, we're classifying things the right way. Um, and that's using the teacup is using an example of something we know about. Imagine looking at an alien culture and trying to classify their different vessel, you know, food vessels. Right? Like, I don't know what the Southwest Native Americans in the Chaco Canyon used for serving corn versus serving beans versus serving who knows what meat, right? We don't know that because we don't live then. So the Ford, Ford Spaulding debate really brought that into focus, saying, hey, we need to be really careful about how we classify these things because there's different ways to classify them. We're going to draw different conclusions, so don't be so sure of yourself all the time. Um, I'm not going to ask you about important publications per se. Um, but there were some big kind of, I'm less interested that you know the people or the publications, but just the idea that 
There were some big publications that shook things up. Um, I think the biggest was that by White. And White wrote a book that talked about, it was called Exos, he talked about the idea of exosomatic adaptation, which is kind of a, drives me nuts when scientists use purposefully obscure language to portray a subtle idea. Basically what he means is environmental adaptation. Um, so White came up with the idea that people adapted to the environment around them. Now some people took this to an extreme and said that environment dictated how you lived. And I mean to some extent it does. If it's raining, I'm going to put on a raincoat, right? Beyond that, they were saying things like people in the Arctic have an uh, environment that is not conducive to civilization. It's too few people, too few resources, you can't live there in a great density of population. So the environment dictates how you live. It's called environmental determinism. Environmental determinism. Environmental environmental determinism. And this was kind of taken overboard and was used kind of like racism in a way in that you're judging, prejudging people based on where they live. Like, oh, people in the Amazon could never be very organized because they live in a really harsh environment. A counterfeit paradise, right? Some people call the Amazon. There was a backlash against this. And in, starting in like the 1960s, people kind of ignored the environment and said, anytime you brought up the environment and people's adaptations to the environment, they blamed, they called you an environmental determinist. And that was an insult. Um, and so today we've had a resurgence in the importance of environment, but we're very careful to point out that people adapt to their environment and there's an interplay between people and their environment. It's not one dictating one to the other. And then we have the dating revolution, which was in uh, the 1950s started to come into play. Uh, a guy named Libby developed carbon dating. And in a nutshell, and we're going to go into, unfortunately, exhaustive detail on carbon dating because it's really important. In a nutshell, there are different flavors of carbon out there. You know, um, most carbon is carbon-12, but uh, some carbon have extra little bits in them. And when they have that off flavor, they degrade over time at a constant rate. So carbon-14 decays at, what is it, uh, 5,730 years, half of the carbon-14 will have dissipated. And by knowing that time and knowing how much carbon-14 is left, you can estimate an age. And that's probably not enough information to really tell you how it works, but again, we're going to go into great detail. What we need to know today is that in the 1950s, carbon dating came in. Before this time, people could only put things into chronological perspective relatively. They could say this pottery type is older than the pottery type. But now, with Libby's um, discovery of carbon-14 dating, they could say this carbon or this um, pottery came, you know, we found it in a hearth with a whole bunch of carbon. We dated the carbon, the carbon came from 1,700 years ago, and then below that was another type of pottery, and that came from uh, 2,000 years ago, right? So they could put it in real time which is exciting because before then we didn't know if 300 years had come between those two types of pottery or 4,000 years. All right, so I'm not going to get into these. 
Uh, I'm going to skip over the modern period because we're going to talk more about the modern period at the end of um, the semester. What you need to know, uh, just to kind of uh, situate yourself for the rest of the semester on the history, um, there's a guy named Louis Binford who recently died, uh, I think like five years ago he died, um, who wrote a very influential paper when he was in grad school, which makes all graduate students feel inadequate because it changed archaeology. Um, and it was called Archaeology as Anthropology. And before this time, you know, we had close relationship with anthropology as one of the four fields. But he explicitly said, no, 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 we're anthropologists, but we're looking at the past, not just archaeology. Um, and so it was kind of a sea, kind of, it was absolutely a sea change. And after this time, uh, he was the head or the leader of a movement called uh, New Archaeology. New Archaeology or Processual Archaeology. Processual Archaeology has to do with process. Like, what is the process of this group? It was, a, it was very into kind of making models of, like, this is how people behave, and then kind of fitting people into those models as widgets, which is one of the critiques against it. Um, I would always, so in grad school, it was like parties with like 20 archaeologists, 30 archaeologists, and so I would like feed my wife, my wife isn't an archaeologist, but I would like give her lines because processual archaeologists and what came next, which had the very inventive title post-processual archaeologists, like are usually at like loggerheads and don't like each, well, they may like each other personally, but they disagree vehemently over how to interpret the past, and so I would give her like controversial statements to say that would like piss off all the processual archaeologists or the post-processual archaeologists and get people fighting at Department events, not really fighting, but arguing. My wife would just like say them and get people going, and she'd be like, I have no idea. Because, you know, chaos theory. Okay, uh, that's not what chaos theory is. Doop, doop, doop. Um, one of the big, uh, like I said, uh, Binford was a graduate student when he came up with this um, thesis statement and new way of doing archaeology. And he uh, challenged a lot of assumptions based on authority. At the time, people who had been doing it for a long time were kind of like the, you know, the really preeminent scholars in their fields were almost unimpeachable. Their ideas were the ideas, and if you didn't fit your ideas into theirs, tough. You're, you weren't going to do well. One example is a guy named J.E.S. Thompson. Eric Thompson was a Maya archaeologist, and he had a really great knowledge of ethnographic or the uh, cultural history of the Maya. And he had a couple really strongly held beliefs that, for example, their writing didn't hold history, that it was just um, religious, uh, he wouldn't use the term gobbledygook, but basically just religious texts that weren't really ha having anything to do with real life. He suppressed anybody who disagreed with him. He also believed that the writing system was um, ideographic, like uh, Chinese where a character means a word, when in fact it's... Um, much more like Japanese with um, syllables and sounds rather than signs. It's a little mixed. He suppressed anybody who had different ideas than him. And it took a lot to change that over and it actually tamped down the understanding of Maya hieroglyphic writing because he helped suppress and 
tear apart anybody who had a different idea. This was kind of what new archaeology was going against. They used a lot more, um, a lot more uh, data-based uh, discussion, or a lot of more uh, data-based um, analysis. Before this, people would, you know, they'd learn a lot about the culture, and then they just kind of like freewheeling interpret what they think happened. Now they'd say, well, what's your evidence? It was evidence-based. And that was able to like tear down these really entrenched um, personalities who just interpreted based on their prestige, really. So, um, new archaeology uses a lot of what's called ethnoarchaeology, which is kind of like um, studying uh, hunter-gatherers to get an idea of how hunter-gatherers say butcher animals, and then looking at how their modern sites look, treating them as archaeological sites. How, you know, where do they throw their waste material? Where do they throw other waste material? How do they sit around a fire? You can see which way the wind's blowing from how they're sitting. Like, all these different things that we can look at people today and then interpret that in the past, which kind of is a redo of what we talked about before. Um, now, real briefly, post-processual archaeology was a reaction to processual. And it said, you know what? You guys think there's one way to interpret the past. There are many ways. So we see archaeological approaches, not just one. And this is all kinds of like sub-interpretation, um, like there's um, gender archaeology that looks specifically at the interactions and relationships between genders in the past. There's uh, Marxist archaeology that looks at the past in a very economic kind of bound way. Um, and uh, there's straight up post-processual archaeology that um, is much more interpretive and gives legitimacy to different interpretations and those based just on processual data. Okay, so Ian Hodder is the, if Binford is the person you associate with new archaeology or processual archaeology, Ian Hodder is the guy that is most associated with post-processual archaeology. Um, they also believe in human agency. Earlier I was saying that post excuse me, processual archaeology had all these like models and like design like mathematical models like how far away would you hunt for deer x miles and that's how far you go and no farther uh post-processual archaeologists said hey 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 these are individuals they're not little automatons that existed in the past just you know following <coughs> your little mathematical equations right these are people and they have agency they can make decisions for themselves and so they emphasize that and the idiosyncratic nature of the past okay uh, yeah, yeah. Most archaeologists, so this was our softball team one year, uh, everyone with an arrow is what we call processual plus, and we only have like one post-processualist, so like schools are very insular, and the people with X's on their faces are cultural uh, anthropologists, <coughs> they're dead to me. Um, but the uh, post-processual, or excuse me, processual plus is basically taking the critiques of the post-processualists and kind of combining them into a new way of looking at things as... Um, you know, looking at gender, looking at you know perhaps a Marxist interpretation, but using data in the way that processualists do. So it kind of combines and hybridizes the two. Not that the processualists or the post-processualists either would be very happy with that. Okay. Now we have ten minutes, so let's rock and roll on some evidence, and we'll get into the writing activity tomorrow. Actually, let's just stop here and talk about, let's just stop here.
Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.